Amen. And you may be seated. Really good to see you. My name is Grant Call. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you were at the uh, Aggie game last night and got in about 3 a.m., we want you to know that uh, we got a special cup of coffee for you right after service, if you can stay awake, all right? And for all of you joining us online, we're really thankful to have you with us. If you want to take your Bibles and turn to Mark 15, we're walking through this gospel. We're at Mark 15, verse 1. And have you noticed that there is just something in us that absolutely craves justice? It's actually one of the indicators that we are made in God's image, that we value justice and we want to see justice. So people that do right, do good things, do the right thing, we would like to see them rewarded and receive the benefits of that. And if you do what is wrong, sinful, evil, wretched, illegal... We want you to pay consequences for that. There, it's just built into us. In fact, when we see evil expressed and justice not meted out, we kind of recoil. Like, that's wrong. It's interesting. The people that say that, you know, God doesn't exist, atheists, they use this problem of evil as part of their reasoning. And for some people, this is the major thrust for it as to why God doesn't exist. And the reasoning goes something like this. If God is all-powerful, then he could eradicate evil, right? If God's all-powerful, he could eradicate evil. And if God is completely good, then he would eradicate evil. So, Because evil continues to exist, why that means that there is no all-powerful and all-good God. God doesn't exist. And you might be saying, well, I don't accept the reasonings of the atheists. But I think all of us at times have really had to struggle, like, where is God when evil happens Where is God in the midst of the suffering, the unraveling of our world? I mean, things are so flipped upside down at this present time, and and people like rightfully saying, like, why doesn't God intervene and deal with this? I mean, this is something that's been around for some time. Even Job. Job actually, I mean, he's trying to make sense of his life. Kids all killed. Um, He's got, you know boils all over his skin. He's in a wretched condition, terrible health. His wife is saying, why don't you just curse God and die? He's got friends that are just kind of piling on him. And I mean, it's, it's terrible. And in the book of Job, he actually says, I want to meet God in a courtroom to basically have God explain himself. Where is God when all this evil is basically just unraveling in our presence? Is God aloof? Is God absent? Are the angry atheists correct? God doesn't exist? Well, when you open up the Bible and you read, and especially when you come to the New Testament, you find that God isn't aloof and he's not absent. God actually enters in and owns the problem of evil. He steps right into it. He sends The eternal Son of God enters into humanity. He is absolutely innocent, perfect in every single way, 
And he actually takes on evil head on. And he makes the problem of evil his own. The one who is absolutely innocent faces the greatest injustice ever perpetrated by humanity. And I want you to know that what God does is that God addresses all the sin in us and in our world through the innocence of Jesus who dies on our behalf. You could think of it this way. The innocent one was condemned to death so that guilty ones might have life. And if you want to know what does that look like when God does this, when did that really happen? Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15 is your text. If you want to see what this looks like, these are our verses. Now, let me give you just some of the context. We've been making our way through the gospel of Mark. When you get to Mark 15, let me tell you some things that had happened. Right after the final Passover and the first communion, Jesus takes his men. They go through the Kidron Valley, about a 30-minute walk. They go to Gethsemane, this garden called the oil press. Jesus tells his boys, his disciples, I want you to pray. He himself goes a little bit farther, and he pours out his soul. The guys struggle with prayer. In fact, they are really prone to sleeping. And for three different times, he wakes them up, but they just keep falling back asleep. And finally, when Jesus says, listen, the time has come. The betrayer is here. Judas comes, kisses him on the cheek, a sign of great affection. But it was also the sign that was given to the high priests, the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Jews, and the Roman cohort. Because the Romans sent a cohort, which is 600 soldiers, that's one-tenth of a legion, to come and arrest Jesus and perhaps his followers because they were expecting an insurrection. And yet they find that they apprehend Jesus and he, he stands right there. They apprehend him, they bring him, and through a series of trials, and we took out it last week, they have their religious Jewish trials. They're actually all illegal. They started off with Herod Antipas. They bring him. He'd been the former high priest, and uh, they kind of have a series of questions there. Then they send him off to Caiaphas, who is the reigning and ruling high priest at the time, because the Romans would kind of interchange them out. Uh, the Caiaphas has gathered the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews, so that's 70 plus him makes 71. They can't seem to find anything wrong. In fact, they're trying to coerce people to lie, and they just can't seem to get it together. But finally, they bring the charge of blasphemy, that Jesus claims to be God. In fact, Jesus even uses messianic scriptures, like from the book of Daniel, and applies them to himself. And they put a huge show on. Remember the high priest tears his garments? And like, that's it. We got him. Blasphemy. This man thinks he's God. And that's enough to get you killed. Well, that is enough to get you killed if you're a Jew. But a couple things. First of all, the Jewish people no longer have the authority to take another person's life, to execute. And second of all, blasphemy is not a crime in Rome that would equate to you getting executed. And so they're really caught in a quandary. What they need, what they need is for the Romans to kill Jesus on their behalf. And so they get together, and that's what we find in chapter 15, verse 1. They convene where the, Jesus, the innocent one, is rejected by his own people. Take a look at it, verse 1. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately 
held a consultation. So they have their little mock trial from about 1 to 3 a.m. After they accuse Jesus of blasphemy, they beat him, slap him, blindfold him, tell him to prophesy, spit on him. When they're done with him, he is held by the temple police till about 5 a.m. The abuse continues. And at 5 a.m., in order to give some sort of semblance that this was official and we did it right, the Jewish Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews, they meet in the chamber of hewn stone. In fact, this is a rendering of what they believe that looked like, where they are going to pass judgment upon Jesus. It is 5 a.m. in the morning. They've already made their decision. There's no discussion, no debate, no one speaking on Jesus' behalf. Jesus doesn't speak. They just pass judgment. He is worthy of death. And, you know, they're breaking their own rules. They aren't supposed to have any trial in the middle of the night. It's always supposed to be done in day. And in cases of a capital punishment, they had to wait an entire day according to their own rules. But you know what? They jettisoned all that when it came to Jesus. They deliberately ignored the due process of their own judicial system. They want Jesus dead, and they want it done quick. And so they have rejected him. And then you see Jesus, the innocent one, delivered into the hands of the secular leaders. Look at the end of verse 1. So after the whole council meets and immediately held a consultation, it was quick. They had already decided the case. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. So they tied him up, and they're going to now introduce him to Pilate. And what's going to begin now is the Roman phase of Jesus' trials. And it, like the Jewish one, had three parts to it. First, you're going to have a trial with Pilate, Pontius Pilate. He is the governor of Judea. Then Herod Antipas from the north, who is the tetrarch, the client tetrarch of Rome in Galilee. He's going to be involved in phase two. He's going to send him back for phase three, where he'll again appear before Pontius Pilate. And so we have him, Jesus, being delivered to him, to Pilate. We don't know a lot about Pilate before his reign in Judea. He is the governor of Judea. He reigns from A.D. 26 to 36. And we don't know a lot about him afterwards. But we do know quite a bit about his time as the governor in Israel. His reign is, is depicted as turbulent. A couple, let me give you a couple of historians who record of what he was like. Philo describes Pilate's reign as categorized as by his veniality, his violence, his thefts, his assaults, his abusive behavior, his frequent executions of untried prisoners, and his endless savage ferocity. Josephus, the Jewish historian writing for the Romans, he recorded that Pilate got off to a real bad start when he began his reign in AD 26. What happened was... Uh, Pilate had something to prove. He was a pretty insecure individual from what we can tell, and he wanted the Jewish people to know who was in charge. Israel is at the far end of the Roman Empire. It was considered likely the most difficult area to reign and rule in because the Jews were, were prone to insurrection. They would fight. They, they absolutely hated the rule of Rome, and it was a difficult place, and it was at the far end of the Roman Empire. And what Pilate did is he decided that he was going to show who was boss. So shortly after he begins reigning as governor, 
he has all of his soldiers show up with these flags with the image of Caesar on them, and he brings them into Jerusalem, the holy city. And the Jews have like a total revolt, and they, they appeal to Pilate and say, every single one of us is going to fight to the death if you don't get that out of here now. And Pilate sees that they're serious. They're, they were willingly, I read about this, would just like lay down and like, you go ahead and just chop my head off right now. We're going to all fight to the death if you don't get these flags out of here. And finally, he relented. But, you know, he, he did things that would anger the Jews. One of the things that was recorded is that he took uh, from their sacred treasury called the Corbin, gifts to God, he took all their money out of the temple one time and he used it to fund an aqueduct um, uh, project. And this, these sort of things kind of infuriated the Jews. They didn't like Pilate. Pilate didn't even live in Jerusalem. He lived at Caesarea Maritima, which is out on the coast, but he would come in for the Jewish festivals, especially Passover, where he would stay at his residence called the Praetorium. He did this because all of these pilgrims, thousands and thousands, the city would swell to 10 times its size, would be gathered, and so he needed to be there in case there were any problems and he needed to bring down the heavy hand of Roman law or to bring the soldiers and call, basically uh, call them into action. And so he'd be present And he was present at this Passover, and they bring Jesus to him. Now, Jesus isn't some unknown to Pilate. Pilate had certainly been aware of Jesus. Remember how Jesus makes his entrance in Jerusalem? I mean, he's riding on the foal of a donkey. All these thousands of pilgrims are calling out, Hail, King, King, Son of David. Uh, They're calling out that he's the Messiah. They're putting palm branches down in their coats. I mean, this is a big show. This was certainly on Pilate's radar. And all of Jesus' activity that week, remember that week of Passover? He began one day, he kind of observed all that was going on. Then he comes back the next day and he flipped over all those tables, right? And he put the run on the money changers and he said, this is my father's house, it'll be a house of prayer and you got this wrong. I need, like, this is a huge disruption. The temple is the central feature piece of all Jerusalem. Pilate certainly was aware of this and his teachings and hearing about him. In fact, Pilate would have had to give his endorsement an okay for a whole Roman cohort, 600 soldiers, to go out and apprehend Jesus in the middle of the night, about midnight, um, or right at early Friday morning, maybe around 1 a.m. This, this was totally on Pilate's radar. But Pilate most certainly was, was asleep when they show up at 5 a.m. and all the ruckus and the Jewish leadership demanding that this be dealt with now. John tells us in his gospel, because all the gospels record the accounts of of these events, that the Jewish leaders, when they show up, they will not step foot in the praetorium. Why? Because as good law-abiding Jews, they didn't want to defile themselves by going into Pilate's house, the praetorium. This is not only where he lived, this is where he adjudicated all of his cases, and this is a holy day. This is the Passover, and they're not going to step foot, so they make Pilate come and observe and see, and they call him out to the basically like his portico of his house. Perhaps he's standing on a railing watching all of this unfold. And they, you see, the Jews, they've condemned Jesus for blasphemy, but they got a problem. Rome, that's not, that's not going to get you killed, 
Okay? They may not like that, but they're not, not going to execute for you for that. You've got to twist these charges to whet the appetite for Rome so that Rome will kill him. And so what they do is they accuse Jesus now of treason and rebellion. You want to see what this looks like? You want to see evil masterminded? Luke 23, verse 2 says this, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, the emperor, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So they're bringing these charges. And when when Pilate hears this, he's got to respond. These are charges of insurrection, rebellion, and treason. This is going to get you killed. And so they bring it to Pilate. And notice verse 2. Pilate summons Jesus, and he questioned him. Look at his question. Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, it is as you say. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You can almost hear kind of the mocking there. Serious? By this time... Having taken a night of abuse, Jesus' face would have been swollen. There's going to be, he's going to be bleeding. He's got blood and dirt all over his garments, I mean, because they kicked him around. I mean, he's, he looks like in pretty tough shape. And Jesus has got him. Pilate's got Jesus, and he says, Seriously? Are you the king of the Jews? Mind you, only Caesar could give the title king. And so to claim that you are a king, why, that would be to basically put yourself in a situation where you're going to be executed. John records a very interesting statement that Jesus makes at this time. And Jesus said, answered and said, 1836 in John, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. He's saying, I'm not a king like you, Pilate. You're a political king. My kingdom is not of this realm. It is spiritual. I'm God. I am the king. And I want you to know, if there was to be a war, my angelic realm, my citizens would be fighting. But as it is, that's not the case. I am not of this realm. So Pilate is trying to take this all in. And notice how the Jewish people are responding. Perhaps they're like not catching on that Pilate, Pilate doesn't seem to be responding the way they would want. And they want Pilate to move quickly, just be done with this. Go back to bed. Just say, kill him. Crucify him. That's all you'd have to do. And so notice verse 3, the chief priests began to accuse him harshly. They had gathered the masses, and they're accusing him. They want Pilate to act, and Pilate is really amazed. Look at verse 4. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answers, so Pilate was amazed. Jesus stood there with absolute silence. Pilate, you know, Pilate had overseen hundreds, if not thousands, of trials. 
He had seen the guilty and the not guilty alike pleading their case, pleading for mercy, talking about how innocent they are. And here's Jesus. He's beat up. He's bleeding. They're just yelling. You can see him frothing at the mouth. And he's just standing there taking it. And he doesn't say a thing. It's as if Pilate is just even begging, urging Jesus, why don't you just say something? Respond to their violent claims. But Jesus just stands there and he takes all this verbal abuse. And I want you to know he does that because that was prophesied of what the Messiah would do when he was falsely accused. Remember the book of Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 53, written 700 years prior to the coming of Messiah. It says in Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, speaking of the Messiah. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. Why didn't Pilate just dismiss this case and send everybody home? I'll tell you why. Because the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews, they had put Pilate in a precarious position. You see, Pilate is is trying to govern the most difficult part of the Roman Empire. And there were, at this time, many in the Roman Senate were wondering whether or not Pilate really had what it would take to do the job well. Could he cut it? Do you have the iron will? Do you have the wisdom? Do you have the gravitas as a leader to effectively lead a people that are prone to rebellion? And Pilate didn't help himself. And there were many wondering whether or not Pilate really was the guy. And so Pilate, you know, he's fully aware of this. He is a political animal. He knows these things. And so he's stuck. He can't just release Jesus because you know what's going to happen? They're immediately going to send a contingency from Jerusalem to the, empire, to the emperor and say, listen, we handed over a guy who was trying to lead a rebellion, and your guy, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the governor, you know what? He released him. That's not going to work. On the other hand, he knows that Jesus is innocent, and he doesn't like to be made a pawn by these Jewish authorities, but he knows he's about one bad decision from being removed, if not sent into exile. But then in the midst of all these false accusations, and can't you see all these Jewish leaders and stirring up the crowd and they're yelling? There is one that makes a statement. Luke, record, um, Luke records it in Luke chapter 23, verse 5. And they make this statement. It says, he, speaking of Jesus, stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. And Pilate's like, wait. What did you say? Beginning from Galilee, Galilee in the north. Guess what? That's outside of Pilate's territory. You know who is running the show up there? The Roman tetrarch named Herod Antipas. He's in charge up there, and guess what? Herod Antipas, just like Pontius Pilate, is also in the city of Jerusalem because of the Passover. And he's like, oh, music to my ears. Serious. He's from Galilee. That's right. This isn't my problem. This is Herod's problem. 
And so guess what? He sends Jesus to Herod Antipas. This is the second phase of this Roman trial. And Herod Antipas, although Mark doesn't record these events in the second phase, uh, Luke gives a lot of attention to this. Herod Antipas, the guy who beheaded John the Baptist, remember that in Mark chapter 6? He really wanted to see Jesus because he had thought, even though he had beheaded John the Baptist, remember at the birthday party that got a little out of control? He had thought that Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead, and he wanted to see him. I mean, he's in charge of Galilee. Most of Jesus' ministry was in Galilee. And we're talking when you're healing people, casting out demons, and raising the dead, that is going to get attention. And he really wanted to see Jesus and see Jesus do a miracle. So they bring him. And guess what? Jesus is a big disappointment to Herod Antipas. Why, Jesus doesn't say anything? The whole contingents of the high priest, the chief priest, the whole Sanhedrin, they go too. It's the same deal. Act two. And they're cranking it up, all their laws and yelling and tearing their garments and putting on the big show that we're handing over an insurrectionist. But Herod doesn't find anything wrong with him and assigns him no crime. And when he sees that Jesus is just standing there and he's all beat up and bloody and it looks a mess, garments torn, dirt all over, you know what Herod Anipus does? He's like, all right, I'm just going to turn this into a joke for my amusement, <laughs> this king of the Jews. So he has one of his soldiers get one of these purple royal robes and they put it on him. And he just lets his soldiers have at him. And when he gets done watching this, he sends him back to Pilate, the third phase of Jesus' trial. And so we have Jesus, the innocent one. He's not only delivered over to the secular leaders, but notice this. He is going to be traded for the guilty. Look at the third phase of Jesus' trial. Begins in verse 6. It says, Now at the feast, he used to release, this is speaking of Pilate, for them, any one prisoner whom they requested. And a man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the insurrection. So there had been a tradition that Pilate inherited that at the feast of the Passover, the governor would give amnesty to a criminal, okay? Kind of like a goodwill deal, like, okay, to show that I'm a nice guy and Rome has some mercy, I'll, I'll pick, you know, some loser that we've got incarcerated and I'll hand him back to you, all right? But in this particular case, Pilate is probably very frustrated that Herod sent him back, sent Jesus back and didn't deal with it. And furthermore, there are actually no crimes assigned. He, doesn't, he hasn't broken any laws. So he's, he's thinking, okay, I got it. <laughs> I'm awake now and I've had my second cup of coffee and I have got an idea. I think I, I can get out of this. And the more he thinks about this idea, the better it sounds. Because they have this tradition that they could hand, you know, they could, they could pick and they could actually have somebody who would be released. Surely someone as popular as Jesus, you know, and they're waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna, son of David. The crowd is going to pick Jesus. So I'll pick someone who is so evil. He is evil personified. He is wicked. He's an insurrectionist. He's a murderer. I'll, I'll bring someone they're afraid of. And I'll say, who do you want? 
Jesus, the king of the Jews, or do you want Barabbas, who's on death row? Barabbas would have no possibility whatsoever of ever getting out. In fact, all he's doing, he's, he's waiting his execution. And so Pilate thinks, I got it. I've got it. We've got Barabbas, an insurrectionist. If you want to know like the modern-day equivalent, just think terrorist. That's Barabbas. And so look at this. Um, verse 8. The crowd went up just like Pilate wanted to hear and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Ah, really? Oh, good. Glad you brought that up. Been thinking about that myself. Verse 9. And Pilate answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? You see, he's just kind of mocking him. He's got him, right? You you want me to release the king of the Jews? Pilate knows there's nothing about this man. He's broken no rules, no laws. He knows he's completely innocent. And so he, he brings them, and you got Barabbas and Jesus. You know what Barabbas' name means? Son of a father. Good job. Son of a father. Think of this. Barabbas is actually an insurrectionist and guilty of treason. Son of a father. Jesus is the son of God who has come from the father. He's eternal. And guess what? He's not guilty of insurrection. And so you have these two, perfect innocence, total guilt, evil personified. And so Pilate says, all right, here we are. It's the time. I know it's because, verse 10, he says, for he was aware that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. And he's thinking when he asked him this question, this is an easy pick. You can't mess this up. The crowd is going to pick Jesus. But look at verse 11. Hostility on display. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. He can't believe what he's hearing. They're asking for Barabbas. What? What? I mean, he had a brilliant strategy. I'm going to get out of this. I'm going to be looking like I'm doing the will of the people. They want Jesus. I gave him Jesus. We're done. And they pick Barabbas. And then Pilate asks this amazing question. But before he does, there's, there's an event that takes place that Matthew records that is just, it's just shocking that this actually happens. It's recorded that Pilate's wife has a dream. And the Romans believed that dreams were omens. And she is so disturbed about this dream about Jesus that she sends a note to Pilate while he is actually in the midst of this intense trial. Matthew 27, 19 says this, And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man For last night, I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. We don't know if like Pilate got a text, you know, and maybe she refers to him as sweetie pie. We don't know. We do know he gets this message. It would be unnerving and rattling. This likely is not an everyday occurrence that you hear from your wife in the middle of a trial and saying you have nothing, absolutely nothing to do with this man. He is absolutely righteous and he's innocent. And Pilate, I think, is convinced of the innocence of Jesus And he's beside himself. And it's at this moment he asks the ultimate question. 
It's right there in verse 12. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? What shall I do with him? Notice that refers to him, the king of the Jews. And you want to hear their response? Look at it, verse 13. And they shout back, crucify him. Crucify him. Crucifixion was reserved for the worst of criminals. It was the most painful death the Romans ever had in their arsenal of ways of killing someone. And here we have Jesus, and he's traded for the guilty. They would rather have Barabbas. And then look at verse 14. Jesus, the innocent one, is declared innocent by the judging authorities. But Pilate said to them, verse 14, why? What evil has he done? You name it. You tell me what law he's broke. Your law? Roman law? He seems to be rather perfect and totally innocent. What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. He's absolutely innocent. There is nothing that he has done to break any law. But you know what? Even though he's declared innocent by the judging authorities, they'll not have it. And notice this, verse 15. Jesus, the innocent one, is condemned to death as the ultimate sacrifice. Look, it's totally unraveled. They're all yelling, crucify him, crucify him, verse 15. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Matthew records that Pilate actually uses a custom from the Jews where he washes his hands before them. And he says this, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourself. He condemns him to be scourged and then crucified. And you know what? When he's washing his hands, and it's, it's all kind of a mock, but it's also saying, Pilate's saying, this guy's innocent. I want nothing to do with this. The people yell out and say, all the people said his blood be on us and our children. I mean, I mean this is incredible. Think of it. They are getting ready to celebrate the Passover where God rescued them. Remember that? That's why they've gathered in Jerusalem. And yet here is the eternal Son of God who brought about their rescue. And guess what? They are condemning him to death. And Pilate, he's such a political animal. He's not asking the question, what is right? He's asking questions like, what is safe and what is popular? And so he, he releases Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, I'm not going to walk you through the detail because I'm not sure we all could handle it, what scourging is involved. But it was referred to as the halfway death. And the Roman soldiers that issued uh, a scourging could bring a man to about an inch of his life and shred him. And they, Pilate thought that if they saw blood and Jesus ripped apart, far worse than he already was, that that'd be enough to satisfy him so he could just like, all right. Many of the people that had been scourged actually died from it. They'd go into shock. And if they did somehow make it, oftentimes they get infection trying to recover. But they were bloodthirsty and they wanted him dead. And so he handed, handed, handed Jesus over for him to be crucified. A Roman governor would simply make this statement. You will mount the cross. 
think of it? Here in those words. And he hands Jesus over to be crucified. Cicero says that crucifixion was a cruel and disgusting penalty. Josephus said, quote, it was the worst of deaths. And do you see this? Do you see the gospel? I hope you don't miss it. Here we have Barabbas, the son of a father, who is now being replaced by the one who has come from the father, the eternal son, who is absolutely innocent. The guilty, guess what? The innocent one is going to pay for him. That, there was a cross that was ready, and it was ready for Barabbas, but guess what? Jesus takes it instead. I hope you don't miss it because all the people that were gathered that day and they're frothing at the mouth and yelling, crucify him, crucify him, they miss this most powerful picture of the gospel where the guilty one is released and his penalty is put on the innocent one, Jesus. You see, Jesus is dying as the perfect substitute on the cross. Barabbas' substitute, our substitute. You see, the innocent one was condemned to death so that guilty ones might truly live. Friends, this is the heart of the gospel. So much so that at Fellowship Bible Church, this is our mission, to glorify God by living out the life we have in Christ. Do you know why we have life in Christ? Because Christ died and he was condemned. And I want you to see it in its full force. So I just have one question I'd like to ask you. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Do you remember the Oklahoma City bombing, April 19th, 1995? You've either read about it, and some of you recall that. This is a picture of it. The uh, Mira Federal uh, Building in Oklahoma City, just completely demolished. Tremendous amount of loss of life. And a nation reeling, trying to figure out what in the world happened. How could this be? Who could do something like that? Uh, Several days after this bombing took place, they were going to have a prayer service. And it was asked by President Clinton that the Reverend Billy Graham would come and to speak at this prayer gathering to try to bring some sense and some healing for a nation reeling in loss. For Billy Graham, he had been extremely sick that entire week prior to this event, so sick that he couldn't get out of his bed. The doctors felt and that he had some significant and serious flu, but Billy Graham responded. So that Saturday, despite the fact he's in very frail health, barely able to move, he and his wife and their son, Franklin, get on a plane, and they go to Oklahoma City. Billy Graham meets with all these people that have lost loved ones and rescue workers and firemen taking in all the tragedy, people in great grief. And then uh, that Sunday, though it was, you look at him and you could tell, man, this guy was in real frail condition. This man spoke with such power and such eloquence. And Billy Graham said some things that really shocked folks, not what they were expecting. And I'd like, you, I'd like to read just a, just a part of what he said in his speech. He said this, quote, There's something about evil we will never fully understand this side of eternity. But the Bible says two other things that we sometimes are tempted to forget. It tells us that there is a devil 
that Satan is very real and he has great power. It also tells us that evil is real and that the human heart is capable of almost limitless evil when it is cut off from God and from the moral law. The prophet Jeremiah said, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's your heart and my heart without God. And that's one reason we each need God in our lives, for only he can change our hearts and give us the desire and the power to do what is right and keep us from doing wrong. Friends, the problem of evil is that evil resides within. But the glorious gospel is this. Jesus has taken on the problem of evil and he has fully taken on God's just divine wrath against sin, though he's completely innocent, so that you and I can truly live. The innocent one was condemned to death, so that guilty ones like me and you might truly live. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for just the power of the gospel on display in the trial of Jesus.